Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. And what's interesting is that in our research, a lot of people, especially young consumers, want to eat more plant-based. But when you ask them what they want to eat, they just want to eat more vegetables. Yeah. They just want really well-done vegetables. This kind of fake meat that is designed to simulate real meat was a novelty for a while. There's room, I think, for some more innovation there still. We'll see. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Dan Fromer is the founder and editor-in-chief of The New Consumer, an influential publication that covers the intersection of technology and consumer brands, and many of these brands live in the food world. We wanted to have Dan on the show to talk about his year-end consumer trends report, as well as to just, you know, shoot the shit about the big stories of 2023, the big moves in consumer packaged goods and retail, and what the future holds for our current United States of Ozempic. It's so great catching up with Dan, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Also on the show, Eliza and I catch up about our big cooking resolutions of 2024, including making bread, working that pizza, and so much more. Dan Frommer, welcome back to This Is Taste. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me again. I want to have you back every couple, every twice a year, maybe. We can make this twice a year thing if you I'm want. I'm in. Huge fan of The New Consumer. I, I read it every you know week it comes out. I listen to your audio versions. Um, so we're going to have this wide-ranging conversation about the year in CPG and in retail, um, you know, consuming things. First, man, I know you're in New York here for like a few days, but what's good in New York restaurant-wise? You know, I just went to, so I'm uh, gluten intolerant, uh, celiac, so gluten-free is my thing. Um, I just went to a gluten-free soba restaurant in Greenpoint called Tawari, which was excellent. It's very hard because most uh, soba, even though buckwheat is the dominant flavor, has has a lot of wheat flour. Yep, yep, Um, yep. But this is 100% buckwheat. Really, really nice. I loved it. Um, And then, of course, you know, I got to go to Atla and uh, a couple other spots, although I have Atla at home now, but... Oh, they have a version out there? Or a, yeah, they opened up, on the, but it's in Venice. I'm not going to drive, nah, west drive side. to the west side. You're an east side guy? I live in the east side. Yeah, yeah. okay. It's like the divide. Yeah, Atla is still kicking here. It's, it's a cool concept. The the soup at Atla is basically all I ever want in the winter. In nice. Um, well, you just got back from Japan, and, and I want to tap in a little bit about what you were spotting there in terms of CBG and food retail trends. You had a great trip. I followed you on Instagram. I'm heading to Korea and Tokyo myself in February, so what should I be looking out for uh so much so as you know you've been to japan before. yeah yeah uh, so a- as you know uh just a culinary treat every 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 corner every corner you, just like incredible uh visual smells everything is great obviously everything tastes delicious too um hard for me to eat a lot of food there so i'm like eating kind of boring food in japan as a gluten-free person um although there's a great facebook group of j- Gluten-free Japan yeah. recommendations. Uh, that Definitely. It's kind of a year-round treat for me. Um, so I, I saw a few things that were interesting. One is, it's, you know, I spent a lot of time in convenience stores just kind of popping in to see what's going on. I have seen, I've noticed a kind of 
uh, boomlet of like healthier food type things, yeah. like a high protein, low carb type stuff. Um, I don't know if I saw the word keto, but like that sort of thing, like, okay. you know, kind of the modern branded uh, healthier food junk, you know, snack stuff, which yeah. I hadn't seen a, a lot of, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah. It's I, usually like full steam, like bad for you health. Right. Like Mountain Dew flavored Cheetos or something like that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hybrid. Yeah. Um, whereas now uh, I have, I have noticed more of that healthier type stuff. Um, and I've also started to see some of, of the, uh, I don't want to call them like the cute shoppy shop type grocers. Cause it's not really a, that so much as just like more modern consumer type grocery store showing up in in strange or unusual places. For example, the amazing uh, tea site, which has a, the, one of the best bookstores in the world, the Tsutaya bookstore there. There's now like a cute little grocery store in the back of that development mm. with all kinds of artisanal, like really what seems like really high-end grocery products for sale and also some more what you would consider like modern brand type stuff. And also more international foods, too. I've seen a lot more. So you're saying in Japan, there's like a little more like, I would say, like focused and, and more curated grocery experiences. Exactly. Is that, is yeah. That, that what you're I've just been seeing them more. You know, there's yeah. obviously grocery stores in Tokyo. Of course. There's, you know, a billion people live there, whatever it is. Um, but I've seen new kind of a, a new what you would call like a new consumer type grocery yeah. store. Uh, showing up in more places than I've than I'd seen on previous trips. And you stayed at this hotel near Yoyogi that I, I saw like a couple times mentioned. Yeah, the new trunk. Uh, a very cool hotel. You know, the the story of of hotels in Tokyo has always been super high end, big corporate chain places. Uh, obviously, small. You know, also Japanese chains like um, business hotels that are less inspiring. But there's been a really cool little boom of boutique hotels over the past five, ten years. Trunk is one of the companies that's doing cool stuff. The founder of that had a very successful wedding business. That's a public company in Japan. That, wow. And he's now spun up these hotels. Uh, the the newest one has this beautiful rooftop infinity pool overlooking the park, kind of yeah. unlike anywhere that you would find in Tokyo. Um, and then just really nice design. Every room has a balcony with some trees on it. It's very cool. Uh, they're, they're doing more projects. They're opening up in Kobe and in, on, on, uh, the Northern Island of Hokkaido in the next few years. And then they're also doing a bigger hotel in Tokyo as well. It's amazing. The trunk looks like a place I need to go. Did you go to a Fulgen in the park? Uh, the, the coffee shop? Oh, Fuglen. Fuglen. Oh yeah. Fuglen that's, a, that's always a must stop. That's yeah. one of my first coffee spots coffee stops every Tokyo nice. trip. Um, Onibus is another favorite. I went to one of their other locations this time. Very cute uh, architecture and, and interior there. And uh, a few others, you know, I, I always kind of hit up uh, the various amazing little coffee shops. Yeah, so here. let me ask you about the, you know, the cafe scene in in Tokyo. I haven't been since 2018. I can't wait to go back. But in, in Korea, when I read about this in Korea World, the book we're putting out in the spring, the, you know, the coffee scene has exploded. And there's actually really good coffee happening. What are you observing in Tokyo in terms of cafe and coffee culture? There's obviously, and there's been this boom for at least 10 years of the kind of third wave, you know, tiny shop, like uh, Little Nap is one of them. Um, uh, there's another one called... Uh, like a good neighbor or something like that. Hmm. Um, Fuglen is obviously kind of like the the the, <laughs> the global headquarters of monocle culture. Is like this yeah. Norwegian cafe and oh my uh, god next door to the to the new trunk hotel. The other thing that's happening that's that's very interesting. And our mutual friend Craig Mod yeah. and I were talking about while I was there is the boom of blue bottle in. Japan and Korea is is wild. Yeah. Like the blue bottles in the U.S. keep getting smaller and kind of less special. And the ones in Japan, like just the tile budget alone, 
It's probably higher than yeah. the whole store here. Really beautiful spaces. Some of them quite large. I, I guess the economics are probably different. I think more people are probably buying food and and perhaps. I mean, I think there's probably a huge investment in Japan from that company. And you know, James Freeman was on the show uh, who founded Blue Bottle, and he was there doing his uh, omakase, doing yes. like a multi-course version. And you know, he's not very involved in in Blue Bottle anymore, but he's re-entering the world of Blue Bottle through this omakase. I mean, is it just like more funding for these cafes in Japan, perhaps? I think that has to be it. Uh, I, I should find out because yeah. that's my job. Um, <laughs> but I went to his omakase in L.A. It was amazing. Wait, you did? Yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, my was, God. It was one of the best things I've done all year. I mean, James is amazing, and, and he's got a spot up in Ojai as well. And I think um, it's cool that Blue Bottle has a presence there because I'm not like the biggest fan of the U.S. cafes, personally. Same. Yeah, they're not they're not my favorite. Not super special anymore, and even the coffee is not as special as it was, you know, in that alley in San Francisco a decade ago. But right. in Japan, it's it's dialed in. It's really nice. So I wanted to to have you in, and you know, we were, we're talking about Japan, which is cool. But I really wanted to actually ask you about some big stories happening this year as we're at the end of the year. And one of the big things that I observed, uh, and we've talked about on the show, is this idea of the box grocery business kind of being in um, a, a state of flux. I think what's happened to Blue Apron is really curious. And, you know, I'm not sure if it went out of business, quote unquote, but it's not doing well. But on the flip side, I had the founder of Hungry Root on. It seems like they're doing well. What is your assessment of this box grocery business? I think there's a couple of things. So Blue Apron is is in the process of being sold and the deal might close by the time this goes up or not. Um, it's being sold to kind of a strange company, which is like a... a uh, well, it's pivoted a few times, but Mark Laurie, who is the yes. founder of diapers.com and then jet.com has this new company. I believe it's called wonder. I should, yep. I should double it's check. Called it. wonder. It it's called wonder. It's called wonder. Yeah. And they first started off doing these like, uh, food trucks that would cook the food while it's, while they're parked in front of your house to give you like the fresh, the freshest pizza or something like that. Anyway, they, uh, now they're pivoting more toward, I think a ghost kitchen type model, yep. but they also just are acquiring blue apron. And the story of blue apron is basically, Pioneers in meal kits, basically they would chop up the food for you and send you little packets or boxes of, of meals that were ready to cook. You didn't have to do any shopping. You didn't have to do any prep. You could just dump the the diced onions and the bacon and the fish into a pan and you were done. And, and you cooked dinner, uh, which for a lot of people was a huge time saver and for some perhaps a, a budget saver. You didn't have to buy an entire jar of capers. You could just get the yep. you know ounce or whatever you needed. Uh, so so that was a that was a big hit. They had a, they were spending a lot of money on advertising. They went public. Uh, the valuation has j basically just gone down. Yeah, since the, minute, since the moment public. they they went public, it went down. Yeah, and I had been very curiously watching them over the past few years because they were one of the first kind of digital native brands. Even though I think a lot of their uh, you know, a lot of their marketing was on TV and and things like direct mail, but they they felt like a digital native brand and. and in my area of interest, it felt like, you know, hey, if this meal kit thing takes off, this could actually take meaningful share away from grocery stores or restaurants or both. And the answer is it has taken a little bit of share, yeah. not a ton. Uh, they've cut way back on marketing because they were losing a ton of money. And there's high churn in this business. A lot of people sign up, yeah. do it once, realize, eh, not my thing. For me, not my thing. I love grocery shopping. I love prep work. Yeah. Uh, I have a kid who's about to be three, I'm going to make him do the dicing of the... For sure, for sure. There's a spiritual nature of going to the grocery store. You're going to church. Many people believe that. Also, just the cost for a customer acquisition for these box kits companies, 
tremendously high. Totally. And so what happens with Blue Apron, for example, is the people who love it stay on it and yeah. spend a lot of money over the course of their yeah. of their lifetime. And so Blue Apron has started to figure out ways to sell them more stuff, sell them perhaps meals that are ready to eat or ready to cook, frozen food, basically, selling them wine, selling them things like that. But it hasn't added up to a good business yet. And so therefore, their market cap was down to like, I don't know, $40 million yeah. or something something really, really small. And they were like, they were in unicorn territory, right, at some point? They were worth billions yeah, at one yeah, point, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so huge uh, market cap crash. Uh, Wonder picked them up. We'll see what happens. You know, it could be the kind of thing where maybe uh, they they cross sell each other. I don't actually know what the plan is. I should try to find. I out. I mean, wonder the ghost kitchen here in the Upper West Side. I walk in, I can get like some chaipani dish, which is great. I can get something a, a taqueria dish, and then um, it like uh, magically appears from the ghost kitchen in the back. Right, or ordering they, a delivery. They yeah. seem to be going heavy on like celebrity chefs and established food brands. Definitely. So maybe the idea is maybe they can food meal kitify that sort of thing. I don't know. Exactly, that's my thought too. Or you actually buy the kits at the at the at the locations. I don't know. Could be. Um, we'll find out. But Hungry Root seems like it's doing a little better because they've diversified. It's more of like a grocery in a box. Hungry Root, super fascinating. I know you had uh, the founder on your mm -hmm. show, Ben. Um, basically the idea there is there are a lot of people who don't like grocery shopping. Can you algorithmically with AI predict what meals they would like based on some preferences they've given you mm -hmm. and then send them a box of food? And for certain set of people, that's worked really, really well for them. And again, the grocery industry in the U.S. alone is a trillion dollar market. Right. So if you can capture even a very small portion of that or affect some sort of shift in the in the mix of what consumers spend on, you can build a pretty meaningful business quickly. It's interesting, and I'm happy you bring up that fact. We can't say that enough. It is a trillion dollar business. There are very few trillion dollar businesses in America. <laughs> very true, yeah. Very true. So um, let's talk about Sweetgreen. I mean, <laughs> I love to get your take on what's happening there. I mean, there's been a lot of product launches, so much press. Um, you know, the one across the street from our office is obviously very full all the time if you walk in there on 56 and Broadway. But this isn't the case at all locations. My assessment is that they just need to make more money per customer. Dan, what do you think about Sweetgreen? So two macro things kind of shaping Sweetgreen. One is like this desire for healthier food, uh, cleaner food, real food. And they really are real food. The, to me, the thing that Sweetgreen still does so much better than any other salad restaurant are the dressings because most of them are made fresh in the store yeah. by their employees with you know, from scratch. Now they're starting to, to do a little a little less of that. Cut some corners, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, scaling is hard. Um, yep. And then the other macro thing is that COVID radically kind of shifted the way people spend time in cities. So uh, Sweet Green, if you remember five years ago in New York, there was a line at lunchtime down the block every day in Nomad. I haven't been there recently. I don't know if there's a line, but especially their inner city locations got hit very hard during the pandemic. Uh, luckily, they were able to make up some of that with delivery and takeout, but the reality is people are still spending less time in office buildings and in cities. So that's been a challenge for all a lot of fast casual restaurants, but especially for Sweet Green, which was so heavy on that kind of millennial Gen Z, like, you know, future, you know, the yeah. new consumer audience. Right. It's, 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 people, it's, people who read my stuff. It's your wheelhouse for sure. They've um, launched some products. What do you think about the protein plates? Well, right. So, so they need to make more money. One big way to do that is to, to move more of their business away from just lunch um, and to get people eating dinner there. They've tried now a couple times with these protein plates. Now they're actually calling them protein plates. They have a lot of protein on them. I got to try some of them in their test kitchen. They are delicious. They're really good. Uh, they also have a lot of, of rice or, you know, well, let's get real. They're delicious them. in the test kitchen. 
True, true. I have, I did. You or you one. bought some. I've been, I've been to the restaurant, and okay. they also are good. It's good not. To, good. To it's know. a little different than having it straight off the grill, right, obviously. Right, right. Uh, but they are good. I haven't seen yet, and you know they haven't reported earnings yet since since launching them, I believe. Uh, and they certainly wouldn't have, you know, a year's worth of data to be able no. to say dinner was. Uh, 30%. I think they're, I think dinner was like, it's in my article, but I think it was like 40% and they want it more like 50, 50 or something like that. So they need to grow that dinner business. Mm -hmm. My guess is that this will help. I don't know if this fully solves the problem, but they're also doing other things. They're trying to get people to buy dessert. You know, they, they launched their basically rice Krispies treat. Oh my gosh. Malcolm Livingston. Bless that guy for making those things. I <laughs> personally love those things so much. Those rice, those rice puff desserts. Yeah. You know, I was not a customer early enough to have experienced the soft serve they used to sell in DC. Although I think I got it once at that. It was that definitely old. at the Nomad location. I remember oh, really? going there and getting soft serve. Absolutely. So let's hope they can bring back ice cream or something like right? that. Right. I would love that. Great call there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating company, and and I hope. Um, I, I'm pulling for them. I, I want Sweet Green to succeed. It, it, it's important to food. I think that putting farmers at the center of their marketing was an original idea that really hasn't been done that that much since. So totally, yeah, local food. Uh, totally. You know, one of my favorite things about them is when they introduced focaccia. Oh yeah. In each of their markets, they partnered with a different local bakery. Yeah. Most like McDonald's not going to do that. No. But Sweet Green did that, and I thought that was very cool. Another thing to watch for them, they're starting to roll out these robotic salad making machines. They just opened their second location in Orange. Orange County that has this infinite kitchen, they call it. Yep. So if that can kind of reduce some of the overhead, make the salad more predictably, you know, the same every time, perhaps that could help as well. On the flip side, Kava had quite the year. Yeah. It seemed they, they IPO'd and they, they, they've done quite well, it seems. I haven't looked at this price, so I don't know where it's at. I, I should have looked before because yeah. uh, I was just thinking about them. But yeah, th you know, successful IPO. Again, uh, they have a balanced day part. They have yep. a strong dinner business because it is warm meat that's grilled on a, you know, it's it's grilled right there. It's yep. you know, much like Chipotle, like the kind of thing that you could eat for lunch or you could eat for dinner. A lot of people don't want salad for dinner. So we'll see if the protein yeah. plates work. And yeah, big year for Kaba as well. If you're a subscriber to The New Consumer, you're privy to uh, your year-end slide presentation. It's it's really invaluable. I'm going to link to the show notes to subscribe. And in the in the deck, you had a really um, a deep dive into our year of Ozempic and and the the products that um, are also in that realm. Um, there's been lots of coverage about what these weight loss uh, products do. I'm not sure if I'm phrasing that correctly, but what is your assessment of our new Ozempic reality? So I just launched my my 2024 consumer trends report. I put out two, or this year we did three of them, but usually two a year. Uh, and I work with a VC firm called Coefficient Capital, and we put out these hundred slide decks that are looking at the next several years in CPG, food, beverage, all the all the categories, beauty that we're interested in. So this one uh, focuses on some big topics, including Ozempic, TikTok Shop. Yep. A few other topics, but yeah, the Ozempic is, is a big one. We just finished our, so a big part of our work is we do a survey of 3,500 or, or more than 3,000 U.S. consumers, and um, this was the first one where we actually targeted and were able to survey almost 400 patients who are mm. currently on GLP-1 drugs, Ozempic, Munjaro is another one. There's a, a Wigovi is the actual. Oh one yeah, Wigovi. That's the that's one. The, the most fun one to say. I just have to say it's fun. It's also the one that was actually approved for weight loss. So you know, Ozempic has actually been around for a long time. Yeah designed to treat diabetes, which is a, a huge health problem here in the U.S., but even bigger problem 
40% of the U.S. population is considered obese. These drugs can make a big difference. They, they work. They are successful at reducing weight, reducing caloric interest. In our survey, people tell us that on the net, they are happier. They're having better physical health, better mental health. Their, their social life is more active. Their sex life is more active, uh, more for men than for women, mm. which is interesting. Um, they are eating less sugar. They're also... Uh, eating more protein. So it's very interesting to see. And, and we were able to kind of cut this survey by, you know, people who are on it for weight loss, people who are on it for diabetes management. Yeah. Um, and then also by demographic, like age or gender or anything like that. It's very interesting to see kind of different patterns for each thing. One of the main problems with this is that something like 80% of, of people who are on this uh, are on these medications told us in our survey that they are experiencing side effects. So oh, wow. it's not perfect. Uh, also, you have to give yourself an injection once a week. Yeah. So not everyone wants to do that once a week, once a month. I don't yeah, know. There's a frequency on the to drug. it. Drug. Okay. So I think the big, like you know, thirty thousand foot question for everyone working in CPG in restaurants in food is like, should we? be scared that we're going to become obsolete if everyone's on these weight loss drugs. That I'm being extremely crass, I realize, but that is kind of the tone of a lot of these these articles. Right, and there was a kind of a freak out on Wall Street. Oh, yeah. you know, these these food companies are hosed and these, these oh, food right. companies like, are great. During some earnings reports, some CEO mentioned it as, like yeah. a, as a reason for blank, blank, blank results, and yeah, people freaked out. Yeah, and again, you know, 1% movement in the business of CPG yeah. is a billion, is a hundred billion dollars. Or, well, ben, whatever. Well, we do it? $10 billion? What is one of uh, that stat? One percent of uh, one trillion is a hundred billion. Something like, that, or maybe ten billion. I think it's ten trillion. Trillion is a thousand billion. So one percent so is ten billion. Ten billion. Anyway, Great. lots of money involved. Um, <laughs> so what's interesting is that I think it's about thirty. I don't have my deck in front of me, but it was something like thirty percent of people who know about these drugs are very interested in using them, and another quarter people are somewhat interested. So there's a possibility that within you know, a reasonable time frame, let's say five to 10 years, tens of millions of Americans could be on these drugs or similar drugs or new drugs that are less invasive or have fewer side effects that are designed to make you feel full and eat less food and perhaps feel healthier and perhaps eat less junk food and perhaps eat better. By the way, 85% of people told us that they feel like a different person since they started yeah. taking these drugs. 60% of men say they've changed their personal style. Like this, these drugs have transformative capabilities. We will see. Now, also a lot of people say they want to get on it to lose 15 pounds and then maybe stay off of it for a while and then come back and then go off. Whereas in reality, you kind of are supposed to stay on them forever to really have- I would imagine that's probably the goal of these are maintenance drugs in, in the long run, ideally. Totally. So we'll see. I think that uh, people are are in the short term overreacting. Like, I don't think this is going to make a super material difference on anyone's business overnight because, again, there's actually no official number for how many people are on them. We estimate between perhaps 8 and 15 million Americans are on them right now. It's probably somewhere around 10, 10, 12. We don't know. And then, of course, a lot of the use is off-label. So officially, yeah. like 15% of people are using them for weight loss. But in a, in surveys, it's more like 50%. Absolutely. So, and different demographics for all those things. But the net is over the long term. I believe that if these drugs are as successful as it looks like they could be, they will actually significantly change what people eat and how they eat. Perhaps they're still splurging on a really nice ice cream or something like that, but maybe they're not 
eating a pint of you know blue bunny well, at home on the weekend. That's the way like that. um, uh, some of these companies may may frame their products in marketing materials. If uh, if we do have a mass culture embrace of Ozempic, I mean, like this is the one splurge. You know, there's going to be more of that kind of dialogue about this is the premium. It's like the premiumization of groceries is going to be more important. I think so. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, you live in LA. No judgment. Do you know people on the Olympic? Do you know people who are taking it? What are, What is your like on the streets view? I do know people who are taking it, but every like here, yeah. uh, San Francisco as well. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. it, it's um. What do know, they think? What, what are they? Are they? Are they very pleased with the results? Look, some of them are taking it because they because they really should be taking it, and they are pleased with the results, and they kind of know they're going to be on it forever. And some people are taking it because they want to look better. Yeah, and, you know, weight is a huge thing in America. Yeah, more people in our survey say they would rather feel twenty five percent healthier than make twenty five percent more money. And in America, weight is health for a lot of people. Yeah. So, um, so we'll see. That some of it is driven by vanity and um, you know, and attractiveness. Some of it is legitimately like weight is a is perhaps the biggest health problem in this country. Yeah. So this can change and save lives, and that is a great thing. But it may also have an impact on um, you know, frozen French fry purchase. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like it's it's a complicated. I'm glad you tackled it. And then we won't talk about TikTok shop um, at length, but it seems uh, you're thinking about TikTok plus retail. It's 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 definitely changing the way we buy things. Super fascinating because uh, the other social networks have kind of flicked at e-commerce, but it hasn't worked super well. But yeah. TikTok, you know, has this massive audience. A lot of Gen Z is on there, and they have added shopping as kind of a native feature to TikTok. We've looked into it. We watched we watched two hundred videos of TikTok shop products. We uh, we've worked with financial data firms to get kind of a sense of what people are buying and how much they're spending. It has already become very big. One firm estimated that in October, which was its second month of being kind of like publicly launched, it did basically a quarter billion dollars in GMV, wow. gross merchandise volume, uh, which is a lot. $3 billion run rate, pretty big. I think that's like almost half the size of Home Shopping Network mm -hmm. or something like that. Wow. So people are buying a lot of cheap stuff. It's not super high quality goods on there. Some real, like especially in the beauty industry, Estee Lauder is on there. Um, you know, Rare Beauty is on there. Elf is on there. The, the real makeup brands are on there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of stuff, like one of the best things so far about TikTok shop, you can actually see how many people have purchased each item. There's a hairbrush that almost 700,000 people. Wow. Have, which is fascinating. And it's kind of become the subject of viral videos, including backlash videos and all kinds. That's of an Alibaba like moment though, right? That like, that like net like consumers, right? Alibaba did that for years, right? I actually never shopped there, so I, I don't never know. Maybe there. They that have makes like, sense. They have you know, like a, a lot of the, a lot of the mechanics of TikTok shop because TikTok originated from China are kind of the East Asian um, shopping mechanics. A lot of like coupons flying in your face, a lot of noise. Not a very elegant shopping experience, but I have to say, pretty pretty impressive what they've done so yeah. far. I would say, you know. Uh, if your product does well on TikTok, you should seriously consider being on TikTok shop. I don't know what the super downside is other than being next to a lot of crap yeah. for sale. I don't expect Apple, for example, to yeah. sell on TikTok shop anytime soon, but Anchor's already on there. You know, real brands are already yeah. on there. So Any food brands that you noticed? Magic Spoon is on there. I think they've sold 400 cases of cereal. I think I saw it this morning. I may have made not that bad. number up, um, which is, you know, it's not 670,000, but, uh, but it's still it's, it's, it's a start. And if you're a first mover there, you're going to win in some ways. Perhaps. Yeah. So we'll see, but I think it's super interesting. And TikTok, you know, is where in, in our prior research where Gen Z says more than any other place is where they discover food brands. So 
perhaps it is a place where food brands should be playing That's as well. That's such an interesting point you make, Dan, because sure as fuck, I haven't found any products myself, and I'm on the I'm on the platform. I'm just not being served it. So it's gonna be interesting to see how that evolves. I have to ask you. Just point blank, is there a CPG brand that won the year? I've been thinking about this. Yeah, I would say it's been a tough year for CPG brands. There are a lot of things that have kind of been a weight. Funding is one of them. Growth. Growth is more expensive. Mm-hmm. Advertising, is, advertising is more expensive. There is a push toward physical retail, which requires working with these distributors, which are generally regarded as not the greatest people to work with. There's a lot of stuff that's made this a very- Costs of goods. Everything, yeah. Yeah, it's right. challenging to Finally, supply chains are kind of working, but anyway, so it's been a tough year for, for food brands. I would say that uh, there's a few ways to look at this. If you're looking at like financial growth this year, you're probably looking at like a brand like Prime or mm-hmm. Celsius, like those energy drinks. Uh, I don't drink those, but- a lot of people do, or Feastables, the Mr. B snack brand, which has become a very big thing, especially driven by Walmart. If you're looking at like scanner data, the probably the winner of the year is like the Kroger private label brand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people are trading down in grocery right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's also another reason that's tough to be a young CPG brand. You know, brands that I feel are executing at a high level just based on you know their ability to get carriage in, in more stores. I think Fly by Jing is doing a great job. You know, we've talked previously about Graza. I think Graza is probably the food brand of last year. So I don't think they were the- Yeah, they're more of a 22 for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they- you know, and and we'll see what the long, t- you know, is that a is that a, is that the king thing you keep rebuying or? And I kind of I filled mine up with with other olive oil. Yeah, the but, squeeze bottle is too good to throw away. Yeah, yeah I agree. Exactly. I mean, I love the product. You know, it's it's like just to repeat, it's like Spanish olive oil. It's not blended. A lot of those other brands that you're buying is, is blended. This is great olive oil. It's really nice stuff. Um, big exit for Rails, the pasta, <laughs> you know, like the huge, huge success wow. financial. Three hundred plus million. Uh, Truff is is crushing it apparently. Other kind of maybe under the radar brands, you know, I'm really impressed with the rollout of Van Leeuwen stores. I think they've done, you know, Van Leeuwen started here as a ice cream truck in, in Brooklyn. And now they have their opening stores like almost every week, yeah. it feels like, mostly in big cities, but super impressive. It seems like they figured out a model that works. Their and, Times Square location is amazing. It's oh, cool. really, really nice. Yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and, and, Playing the game, like they work with Walmart on stunt flavors because yeah. you kind of have to do that. But really impressive rollout for that. Uh, but I wouldn't say there's like one brand that I'm just like, oh, man. You've given know. us a medley. And I think the Celsius, uh, like the energy drink locale model um, may be better for you because it has some like, you know, vitamins on the label. People love that stuff. People love it. Yeah, it's and people need it. I mean, it's part of their, like, it's like their coffee. Well, and if you think about that market, it's been so heavy with, like, Red Bull and very bro-y, like, Monster and Bang. Yep. And I guess Prime is kind of bro-y, too. Prime but. is, like, a better version of Bang, it feels, in yeah. some ways. I don't know. Whereas Celsius is a lot more kind of palatable for other yeah. people. There's a, there's a startup called Gorgie that is yeah. like very women-focused. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting things happening in that in that category continues to grow. Uh, another one I would say, I think Olipop's done a nice job rolling out. I, I don't know what their current financials look like, but they've, they've rolled out multi-packs. They're, yep. you know, they're getting distributed places. They're launching new flavors. I think it's, I think it looks good. It looks good. I had been on the show and I asked him point blank. I mean, this refrigeration thing is like the biggest puzzler for me because, you know, you got to keep it cold. 
So like, how do you scale up if you, I mean, it's very limited space in these cooler count in these cases, right? Yeah. What do you say? Well, he said he's not going to reformulate to make it shelf stable. I know that for sure. At least now it's a good episode. I'll link to the show notes. I feel like you have to reformulate if you're going to grow. I think at some point they have to. I mean, you have to. It's a great product. I'm a huge fan of it. Is there anybody in the world of CPG that maybe stumbled a bit in 2023? Or is there a category that's maybe dipped a bit? Here's where I'm a little concerned. We had a lot of these very, very, very niche, cute brands launch online, build a really big following that ultimately is actually not that big in the scope of the world of food and CPG, try to expand into retail. And maybe that first product didn't really work in retail. So I'm, I'm not sure. These companies, you know, that it's hard to raise money right now. You really have to be scrappy right now. And a lot of them are are pivoting hard. I don't know. I want to say they're treading water, but it's going to be, there, there was a lot of cuteness that got funding and got popular during the years 2018 through 2021 that's, that are going to have, uh, you know, hit a hard point. And so we'll see. I, you know, I, I wouldn't say they've they've crashed. Like we'll see what happens, but it's it's going to be hard to watch some of that. I think. I watched the fancy food show in New York in July, and I felt like there was a lot of of shelf stable sauces, like stirring sauces. And to me, and you know, with the Rayo's exit or sale, it seems like it's probably people are still thinking about sauce, maybe pasta sauce, and as a growth opportunity. But it felt like there was like an oversaturation of that category, and a lot of it was very cute. I was obviously not sampling all of it, but man, I don't think we need like you know 50 new skews of of, of stirring sauces yeah i have another answer which is obviously and now duh plant-based meat like it really oh yeah totally really we hit, can definitely talk shit about plant-based meat it really <laughs> hit a ceiling and what's interesting is that in our research a lot of people especially young consumers want to eat more plant-based but when you ask them what they want to eat they just want to eat more vegetables yeah. they just want really well done vegetables and they and people want to trade up to better vegetables this kind of fake meat that is designed to simulate real meat was a novelty for a while and people actually still are interested in trying new formats of it especially if they can save money in our research which they can't so far cuz it's more expensive oh, or, yeah, always. or similar so there's there's room, I think, for some more innovation there still. We'll see. Meaty is a company that there's a huge question mark next to. They raised a lot of money to make this kind of meat that is based on a mushroom root that is supposedly even more like real meat. I haven't tried the steak one yet. I'm not, I don't like this stuff. For me, I'd rather have less meat, but better meat. And I think people who want to eat more plant-based want to eat more vegetables. I got pitched five different times from four different agencies for prime roots. Oh yeah, and I was like, I don't love Prime Roots, and I don't hate. I hate picking on brands, but they put themselves out there. It just isn't working for me. Like this is a plant based lunch and meat company. Now they always have an opportunity to reformulate, and certainly get in touch if you want to talk to me. But just not a fan. It's tricky. Uh, some of the stuff. Some of the stuff's pretty good. I actually tried a plant based cheese at Expo. Uh, mm-hmm. called Climax Foods. Uh, interesting uh, name, all right, sure. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll, I'll buy it. But there, it was a brie, but the blue cheese was the one that I was just like, okay, this could just be blue cheese. Oh, and rad. Because the same bacteria, just a different base. Yeah. Um, That was delicious. And then there's a new one that's not launched yet called Nobel, which is making melty plant-based cheese. Oh. And they're, as a brand, they've done some very fascinating stuff. They made a very cool zine about pizza, uh, yep, I saw that. Yeah, Smart. so we'll see. I, I, I haven't tried it yet. They're not letting people try it yet. We'll, <laughs> Funny. We'll see. They're good with the zine, but they don't, they can't sample out to the expert. Okay, too early. Fair. But 
Maybe next year. We'll see. I have to mention, too, when I mentioned Stern sauces being maybe in a dip, what I did like, I think my favorite pivot this year was Amsom pivoting to saucy noodles because those are fucking great. Are I, they? I can't eat them, so I don't you know. You can't eat them. But I love their sauce. Their sauces are great. I love the Stern sauces. And I just I love the way those noodles are pre- presented. It's a really great product. It's t- terrific. Oh, nice. Speaking of retail, Dan, I've asked Andrea Hernandez from Snackshot, Emily Sunberg, Ellie Truesdale, and many others this question. I want to get a sense... Um, is there a, an indie food or food adjacent retail that uh, a channel that excites you? It doesn't have to be a, an indie grocery store. It could be a general store, but anybody selling food that isn't exciting you? I have to say, I still love Cookbook, which is our kind of East LA small grocery store. They just opened a new one yes, they in did. Larchmont with a cafe. We went last weekend. The food was great. It's a great little store. Celeb sighting, like all you yeah. want in, a, in an LA moment. The produce is still as good as it gets, you know, farmer's market quality produce, uh, tiny stores, really great meat. They don't have everything, but they actually have more stuff in a, in a tiny space than you would expect. So still love my cookbook. Other than that, hard to say. A lot. Of, I think a lot of the shops that opened in the last four or five years are struggling. You yeah. see that from a lot of them publicly. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tough market, you know, food, perishable, uh, very low margin, tricky stuff. And retail, I'm still... Uh, it's, it's still really hard. And on the flip side, a lot of the brands aren't able to pay slotting fees to get in there because their VC money is is drying up or the, the money is expensive now. So like maybe products aren't getting in to the channels as, as readily. It's a lot. I mean, you know, we I I think maybe last time we talked about Foxtrot. I love I, I love Foxtrot we and did. I want to see Foxtrot win, but Foxtrot is merging with another Ooh. Chicago grocery store in a deal that does not look like it was anyone's favorite deal. No, Dan, you wrote about that. It was a great piece and, and it really did kind of uh, fairly and accurately um, say, what is the motivation here? Um, it's a Chicago restaurant group that acquired Foxtrot. It's a it's a grocery group that grocery has two group. stores mm-hmm. and they merge and the idea is that maybe together they're stronger than they were apart, but this is kind of an indication of the, the kind of capital markets we're in right now where it is hard to get anywhere close. I mean, the deals that people were getting two years ago are just not happening right now. Right. What about big box? You know, are you are you observing anything in terms of big box grocers doing anything interesting? Um, any kind of like, you know, stores within stores or just marketing initiatives? Well, the uh, Whole Foods advertising TV rollout is going to be really cool innovation. You know, I guess they're getting like 50 TV ad units per store or something like that. That's what someone was saying yeah. recently. Is that consumer media? They're, they're selling consumer media. Is that like... Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's all... Can, huge can, business. It can even be targeted based on who's in the store and their Amazon purchasing behavior or something like that. It's amazing. Uh, it's wild what you can do now. I am super uh, uninspired by Big Box lately for the most part. Uh, Whole Foods, I spent some time walking the aisles uh, in the Pasadena store the other day. The prepared food section feels like it's from 1994. <laughs> There's been almost no innovation there. I got to say, I think Erwan's doing really well there. Yeah. And, and the numbers prove it. Like they, Their prepared food in their restaurant is a huge part of their business. They are not hyper-growing right now. They're opening a couple stores a year. They, they, they also they pumped the brakes in their New York expansion, which was great. Or that might have been just like I fake news. That was fake news. Okay. Yeah, that know. was they, fake from the, from the source. I think they did a little pop-up. But, you know, maybe they'll open here one day. No. Well, there's money here. Anywhere there's money, there can be an air one. It is a very L.A. kind of thing. But the, sto- the 
they just opened a new store in Pasadena too. By the way, if I had to eat dinner at Whole Foods or at Erwan in yeah. LA, a hundred times out of a hundred, I would not be eating dinner at Whole Foods. No. So uh, I, I wouldn't call Erwan big box, but I would say they have done a good good job in their expansion and uh, and it's it seems to be working. Yeah, it's funny we didn't mention Erwan until this point in the in, in conversation. I have to say, pre Amazon acquisition, uh, Whole Foods. I used to joke with my wife that it was like my favorite restaurant. It used to be like the <laughs> yeah. one on Bowery that uh, the, the one oh on Houston that was so yeah. good, man. I could have a great meal for like $10 there. It was so good. Yeah, that the upstairs food court was fascinating when it launched. I right? Guess, I guess didn't really work super well, but... It didn't work quite well, but um, it was it was really good, and I went there for meals. It was great. I used to eat dinner at Whole Foods all the time, and no, not awesome. anymore. So, Dan, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? Boom. Always ready. The best breakfast food. Oh, I love a breakfast salad. Is that weird? Yes, it's weird. I Let's a, go I there. I make a salad for breakfast most mornings. Fruit salad? No, just a little arugula, maybe with no dressing or just a little olive oil, salt. The, the best breakfast salad is at Squirrel. Actually, the best breakfast is at Squirrel, I think, still. I still go there all the time. Give me a sorrel rice, a half rice, half Always. kale, oh. or, a, or a crispy rice, or the new laki tot. It's all, it's all so the good. sorrel rice will always be my number one in that place. But for me, it's, it's give me a couple eggs and, and some salad or some uh, sautéed greens and maybe some bacon if I'm feeling good. Japan and Israel, always there's some breakfast salad on the table. So good. Oh, I, love I love it. That. The best dessert? Uh, ice cream. All, all the time. Any brand that jumps out at you? Favorites are McConnell's, yeah. Van Leeuwen, yeah. and local soft serve. And it's actually Japan soft serve because <laughs> it's not so sweet. It's like yeah. very creamy and savory. Hokkaido milk. Mm. Gotta go there. Favorite Los Angeles restaurant right now? Right now? Whew. You know, I, I have a toddler, so we're mostly eating at like home state uh, tacos. I go there... In Highland Park, I go there all the time. <laughs> I gotta say, it's better than the the breakfast tacos I've had in Austin. Listen, sure. I, somewhere I in Austin there are better breakfast tacos, but Homestead is is really good. You go Homestead and Cookbook, and you're good. Uh, yeah. Queen Street is new and is nice in uh, in Eagle Rock and or Highland Park, whatever you yeah. want to call that area. Uh, recently went to a, a kind of a classic place for the first time called Jar, which was really oh, nice yeah. in West Hollywood. Uh, and the other night we went to Horses, and I was surprised by actually the food was delicious. Oh, let's go there. Okay, what's the, what's the report from Horses? Lots of lots of chatter. Scene report. It was packed. Yeah. It was packed full of good looking people. Feels like a New York restaurant, but uh, it was great. It wasn't going to go away because of that. No, those come bumps on. in the road. Not they, in L.A. No one. Cares. Not no one gives a shit in, in L.A. Have you been to any of the funky restaurants recently? It's hard for me to. I can't. That's eat right. Most you don't do food. The... So, uh, but we what was the what's the big one that feels like you're in Vegas? Mother Wolf. Yeah, it was cool. It was fun. Great place. But I, yeah, I can't eat the pizza. We had the Bonza founder on, and by the time this airs, I think well, the episode will be out. But Bonza is like. 20% of my carb intake is bonza food. Right. It's, I love it. It's I love it too. I I, I really am in that interview, I think it really shines how much I love it. You know what else? Friend. Uh uh Capello's mm. has just launched frozen gluten-free biscuits. Wow. They're really good. I you know, I'm 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 lucky I don't have uh, gluten-free, but I would miss biscuits. That would be one I would miss. They're so you not, must look, feel great. They're not the same. I used to eat gluten. They're not the same. <laughs> Croissants will never be the same. Oh my but god. These no. are these are good for a freezer biscuit. Oh my God. That's, um, you know, freezer biscuit. Carb. No car. I love that shit. It's good. A couple more. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Uh, of all time. It's funny. I love reading cookbooks for the content and not just, you know, and the recipes. I would say the cookbook that has, that I've cooked from the most is actually the Burma Superstar cookbook oh, wonderful. from San Francisco. Totally. Food that's hard, it was always hard to get in New York. Yeah. Hard to get in LA. 
Uh, so I make a beef curry from there that's delicious and some other stuff. Uh, I think the, like the Momo, the first Momofuku cookbook was very influential yeah. on me. There's one well, the I have, only one, really. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard for me to eat Asian food in restaurants, so I make it a lot at home. So Japanese Home Cooking by Sonoko Sakai is another yeah. one that I love. Huge, huge fan of Allison Roman cookbooks. Yeah. Molly Ba's cookbooks are solid, too. And also, Canel uh, and Vini, I think, is a series my wife has that we do gluten-free baking from. That's really oh, excellent wow. too. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the um, Otolenghi books. Yeah. Every time I have Chris Black over, who doesn't eat meat, <laughs> I have to pop open an Otolenghi book. Oh my god, and, Chris Black! <laughs> and Guess cook something show. for him from there. Um, Fermented tea leaves. Oh yeah, such a great product. I mean, that Hard thing, to that, find that Burmese uh, superstar book. You I need have. to figure out how to find those in LA. They used to sell them. Burmese superstar. They used to actually they do. sell. You could, if you go to Buy Right in SF, which is yeah. probably my favorite kind oh, of yeah. mid-sized small neighborhood grocery in America, you can buy Burma superstar tea leaf salad kits. But they're not yet in the LA. Market. They're not in LA, as far as I know. Buy Right ice cream, though. Wow. Also excellent, and the so don't sleep on their soft serve too. Don't, also excellent. Mm. We go all day. That's this. actually one of definitely a top five ice cream. Food. I love it's, this. It's a can, let's go. To, let's do ice cream next summer. Let's come back, please. You'll, we'll, we'll talk about. We'll this do stuff. a tasting. We'll do a. We'll, we'll get a crew. We'll do a taste. I love it. Yeah. Last one. Your favorite sandwich. So, oh man, this is a hard one because my favorite sandwich used to be there were two or three. There was a place called Spoon on Twentieth Street, which had a killer steak sandwich. Uh, they're no longer around. Yeah, and then know. also an amazing sandwich with um. Like salami, chopped artichoke hearts, and fresh mozzarella. And it was just, and arugula. It this was is at Spoon sandwich. as well? Yeah. Oh, they, we used to go there for lunch all the time in like 2008 or something like that. And then obviously witchcraft. I miss witchcraft too. So my favorite sandwiches are sandwiches I can't eat anymore. Witchcraft Gluten, is. Gluten-free mm. sandwiches are tough. The one I make the most at home is actually a, a grilled broccoli, fresh mozzarella sandwich with some spicy mayo that I make with oh, a yeah. cookbook chili jam and a, an acid league yuzu mayo. What's your bread though? Uh, whatever focaccia I can get Just my hands focaccia. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're good. You're... Or, you know, when you're gluten-free, you don't have a lot of choice. I was going to so wonder if there was Whatever's brand, around. Whatever. Okay, around. actually the best gluten-free bread in the world, in my opinion, well, especially now that Bread Block closed in LA, is a place called Chambalon, which is mostly in Paris. I believe they're also in Belgium. But so we were just in Paris. I brought home a six-month supply of Chambalon bread. You know, you kind of have a couple slices a week, but yeah. it's really, really good. And uh, it's it's not sandwich bread, but it's it's breakfast. Amazing, uh, and yeah. you, you freeze it and you just bring it out. Freeze it, get oh. the good butter out, toast up a What a treat. Pieces. It's the best. I would love to have you just write a... Write a little story about your 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 practice, your your good your bread <laughs> practice. It's, I'll do that for you. It, I, let's do it, Dan. We're all, we're gonna do it off mic. Done. Dan from thank you so much for joining. This is thank nice. you, my pleasure. Hey, what's up, Eliza? How you doing? I'm good, Matt. How are you? Well, we're just about at the new year. I mean, I think this is gonna run maybe near the end of the December, I think so. Well, December is over before it starts for me. So I think that <laughs> sounds right. Yeah. So we're in the mood of cooking resolutions. I feel Anna and I wrote a piece, I think in like 2018 about our cooking resolutions. And it's, it's the idea is that 
these are the the things that we want to achieve in the kitchen in the coming 12 months. And I, I like it. It's like goal setting, right? It's a little goal setting. It's aspirational. Do you, do you think about this yourself? I like to make a more and less list at the end of every year, which is like things that I want more of less and less of in the mm, coming mm. year, which I find to be less restrictive than just one resolution. But I definitely have a couple of cooking resolutions. More or less. Let's tap into that for a second. Do you, yeah. Have you started thinking more or less for next year? Um, you know, I do it twice because I do it for Rosh Hashanah and then I do it again for the like Gregorian New Year. Yeah. So I did it in September and I have not thought about it since. Okay. So I think probably like uh, when it's actually New Year's Day is when I'll make the list. Is again. when you actually actually think about it. Okay, well, let's talk about cooking resolutions. What's your first one? My first one I think is probably not one that most people would say, which is that I want to use more appliances oh. in the new year. Mm, do tell. I just have never lived in a New York City apartment where I've had any counter space or cabinet space to have appliances. And now I actually do. And, you know, I don't have a rice cooker. I don't have an instant pot. I don't have a <laughs> waffle iron. Like I really have two pots and two pans and a mini food processor and a blender and that's it. So I think that it'd be really fun to get like one or two appliances to play around with and just kind of mm. expand what I'm doing in the kitchen because I actually have empty cabinet space. To I go. love it. So you don't have a waffle iron. No, which like most people probably don't. But every winter, I think it's going to be my winter of waffles because I am fully yeah. convinced that I would be happier if I had homemade waffles. And um, I have space for that. So I think that might be the first thing I get. I think a waffle iron is amazing. What about so the, the Instapot? What do you think about that? I've been debating because I the other thing is like I like things to take a long time. I like to hang out and like simmer beans for a couple hours. So an Instant Pot, I think I would probably use the pressure cooking and the yeah. slow cooking a lot. But I think... Probably my top two things I'm going to get are a waffle iron and a rice cooker. And so let's talk about what I, I think is probably my favorite kitchen appliance. It's it's the the, the blender. Yeah, I do Vitapre have a Vitamix. You ha so I was going to ask you. Oh, I recently got one refurbished mm. that I've been using a lot and I think is really great. You got a refurb. Yeah, I mean, why not? It works just as well and it's cheaper. You bought it like online refurb? Yeah, Vitamix sells like uh, accredited refurbished Vitamixes on their Whoa. website. So that's what I did. And it like showed up like super normal, like super clean? I think so. It seems completely normal and fine. And I've been, I made like a lot of smoothies over the summer with it. I just made a really good kind of green sauce last week. But I think winter, I'm probably not going to use it as much. And that's why I need to up my waffle intake. What a sweet idea. I yeah. Love that. that's So that's my first resolution. What's yours? Okay. My first resolution, after the caveat is this, I've been living um, living a lie. We publish incredible books about bread baking. We have conversations at length with bread bakers and, and, and cookbook authors who focus on bread. And my lie is this, I don't bake bread. I like literally have made bread like twice in my life. Are you telling people that you do? No, I guess you're right. I'm not like overtly lying, but by like like when I'm like, hey, so let's talk about your starter. When I get in these conversations, it's like almost like we're in the same club. Like, you know, we're alongside each other. Like when I had like, you know, Ken Forkishon, we're like rapping like about bread for a minute 45. And it's like, I'm living this false truth. Yeah. I literally don't bake bread. So my first resolution is to take a page from Mauricio Leo's The Perfect Loaf and actually make some of his recipes because I love Mauricio. He's an incredibly smart educator and I want to get to know his recipe development more. So I'm going to make some Mauricio uh, recipes. Okay, well, my second resolution was to to make bread. Oh, well, let's <laughs> Or to restart making bread because I had a, a 8-month sourdough phase 
in late 2019 through early 2020 that was really productive and I really enjoyed it. And then um, I just kind of fell off the wagon and I'd like to get back into baking bread, especially in the winter. I think it's a really nice time to just be slowing down and doing those things. So you do sourdough. Is there a recipe that you reach for when you bake bread? Um, I actually did use a combination of Maurizio's like basic loaf recipe. And then Claire Saffitz did a really good like how to make sourdough bread guide for the New York Times a couple years ago. So that was kind of my jumping off point. And then I would kind of play around a little bit with mixing in flavoring, but I kind of just did that. So maybe we can go have these on a starter. I would love that. Let's like definitely split a starter. Let's let's go there and like let's swap notes. Like come March, let's definitely have some proof that we, pun intended, that we actually did some bread. Yeah, actually, I have a specific starter in mind that I want to get some of my starter from so I can bring some to you as well. Oh, you're so cool. I appreciate that. (laughs) This is something that I've been thinking about for a while and I want to act upon it. I want to work a couple shifts in pizzerias. And I, I have this opportunity to do it. And I want to make dough. And I want to turn... I want to, like, do the thing, like, which is basically... I want to like take the dough and I want to stretch the dough and I want to make some pizzas. I just want to fucking do it. I want to watch you like throw the dough up in the air and catch it. So I guess talking to Dan Holtzman in LA and I, I won't be working at one of his places, that that is like a little bit, that like fucks up the pizza a little mm-hmm. bit when you do that show offy stuff. It's a, if you watch like real pizzaiolos, it kind of feels like it's a little like less movement is more. So I'm thinking if my sister-in-law is listening to this episode, Maya at Franny's in Highland, New Jersey, I want to do it. I want to maybe like ask a friend locally, maybe in Brooklyn. I just want to, I mean, it's like straight stodging. I just want to do a couple shifts. I like that. I think that's a great idea. It's like, a, it's definitely like a resolution to like learn it a little bit more. And we're working on our pizza week. And I've, I've mentioned this in the past. We're going to have this pizza week in January. and It's going to be really fun. So yeah, it'll be related to that. Yeah. What's your last one? My last one is kind of boring, which is that I want to be doing more meal prep in the new year. <laughs> I know. Everyone totally says not. it. My version of meal prep is making like one or two big batches of things that I can just kind of use as a base throughout the week. Um, so like roasting vegetables or making a pot of beans, which I do quite often, or roasting a chicken. And I think that I just forget that I have to cook from scratch sometimes, or I'll have a lot of like quesadillas for lunch. But I think that if I had a couple two staples around, I would just be like a happier and healthier person. So <clears throat> Great, great, great goal. I think soup is one thing that we really like to make a lot of around our house. And we we typically, it lasts like five to seven days and it gets better with time and you can always gussy it up. Do you have any go-to soups? Oh, I, I basically exclusively make soups in the winter, I would say. I feel like I rarely use a recipe. I kind of just look at what I have in my fridge or think about a flavor profile For sure. that I'm craving. I made a really good um, curry last night, which is not quite a soup, but you yeah. know, a brothy, hearty kind of situation. Something I also am interested about with soups is Natasha Pickowitz kind of turned me on to the idea of a soup mother. Do you know about this? No, I love that idea. It's I mean, a, I love the theory of somebody who's motherly and who's helping you make soup better. Is that what it is? No, but I like okay, that I'm interpretation. Like, it's like a storybook. Like it's like a soup um, mother. It's like a starter almost. It's like keeping some of your soup from like you make soup, you keep some of it. I think she just keeps it on the stove. And then when you're making soup the next day, you kind of augment it. So instead of starting from zero with flavor, you have this like flavorful soup that you made previously that you're then like augmenting to make a new soup. Oh my God. It's like the Solora method. Perpetual soup. Perpetual soup. Yes. 
Can we like write that article on taste? I feel like the perpetual soup is so good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of been written in different capacities because yeah. there's like this person in Bushwick that's been doing a perpetual stew that is ongoing where people, everyone in the community comes and brings like their ingredients and then the soup is kind of being made in that way. But I do think more people should know about it. So. I feel like this is such a cool thing. Yeah. Perpetual hmm. soup. That Perpetual is maybe soup. my fourth bonus resolution. Yeah, it's like an extra resolution, but like meal prep is cool and it definitely saves some cash too. It's good. Right? All Smart. of the above. So it's it's good for you. Just good good for your body. Meal prep. I have, okay. I have one more. What's your so, one more? Yeah, yeah. I I have I have had two. My two just to recall were make more bread and work at a pizzeria. So this is yet another kind of project based idea, and it is to f- smoke something. Now again, we talk about these ideas a lot on the show. Smoking it goes hand in hand with grilling. You know, in the warmer months. And I don't do enough of it. And I have like a little more space where I live in the Hudson Valley. So I have no excuse to avoid smoking. And I think I might buy a smoke gun. What is a smoke gun? Smoke gun looks kind of like a vaporizer. Um, It's basically how you inject smoke into certain things like vegetables or grains or pieces of meat. You could cold smoke with it if you want to do seafood. Mm. Um, And I just haven't done it. I haven't like embraced smoking i know we have a really cool smoking book i think 10 speed uh did it it's called thank you for smoking (laughs) which is really fun to have a cookbook that way uh with that title but i just want to embrace it more i I feel like or embrace it at all i've never really tried it i like that idea i had a really good smoked beet a while ago that i've been thinking about a lot since that's a great idea a smoked beet it's like beets are cool borscht whatever but when you smoke a beet, it's a totally different category. Yeah, I just think beets soak up flavor really well. That's why they're so good to marinate. But sure. I think that doing like a smoked marinated beet, now we're really talking. Now we're talking. Now we're cooking with gas or we're smoking with gas or no, that's not going to work. <laughs> now we're smoking with smoke. Now we're smoking with smoke. That's right. Hey, Eliza, thank you for sharing your resolutions for the year. I hope we can can hit a couple of them. What do you think? Yeah, me too. Let's Let's circle back in 2024. Okay, let's do it. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.